Kraken. Welcome, <laughs> welcome to the On Meaningful Work podcast. Mm. This is a long time coming. It is indeed. And I, I'm not sure how, how, do, how would, I was thinking of something to say in terms of who are you to me? Like friend, muse, <laughs> business partner, um, dance, dance partner. Um, we've been through a lot together and um, besides working with you, you are one of my, one of the most dearest people mm-hmm. in my life. So it's really glad to talk to you. It's a bit weird talking with these microphones in front of us because... We'll forget they're there and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because, yeah, anyway, so welcome. Thank you. Mm. And finally made the cut. Finally, finally <laughs> did. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe to start off, maybe what's your origin story? Like, where, where are you from? Mm. Like, where did you come from? Um, I mean, what realms are we going to? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll start with the... Uh, Gaia, the earthly yeah, realm. Yeah, the earthly realm. Um, I am a uh, first generation born on my father's side in Australia mm-hmm. from a long line of English, um, Irish and Scottish folk. Mm-hmm. Um, and on my mother's side, um, a fifth generation um, born in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always interesting being asked that question. Because so much of my journey, like my path in my work life, but my personal life, which is kind of crossed over, is really around this question of um, where's my root system? Mm. And I'm a fruiting body of a mycelium network that Mm. has been cut off from um, what I know it was. Um, And... I've popped up on this continent that I love dearly, but I mm. know deep in my bones is not home to me. It has mm. never felt um, home in the sense of an ancestry. Mm. It's home now because of the the world that I've sort of created for myself. But yeah, I find the I find the conversation around identity, of particularly origin story, mm. um, something that's shaped like that is that the root system is mm. literally what shapes my every day. Um, and straddling that discomfort in the work I'm doing, especially um, in Australia and, um, you know, around whose who's land am I standing on mm-hmm. and how are they leading us? Mm. And that's been a, a, a story in Australia that's been yeah. horrific and devastating. For sure. And, and we'll definitely get into that. Mm. But is there any way that you do feel at home or do you feel... Oh, I, I mean... If you asked me that question a few years ago, mm. um, I think I yeah, roamed the earth quite furiously mm. trying to find that place of home mm. um, until I really um, embedded a key, like some, a number of practices that are real lifelines for me, especially mm. the practice of a sit spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and through a sit spot every day, even when I've been, you know, I've been living on the road for years, and mm. even though that sit spot might change your day, um, paying attention to the mm. to the web around me wove me in, and I just kind of slowly was called back to like the greater web that mm. we're all in. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I feel like now I feel at home um, when I know what the seasons and the cycles are doing and mm. where the birds are and what's growing in the biosphere that I'm in and mm. being able to tend to that in some way, I feel like I'm connecting myself back into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely it's been, um, there's still a homesickness for mm. a place that I'm trying to find, which mm. is this this lineage that, yeah, is, is hard to find. Sure. I've lost. Mm. Mm. And, but you did grow up in Perth? I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, I grew up in Perth mm-hmm. and... Um, yeah, I moved over here um, mm-hmm. to Melbourne and about 10 years ago and I've mm-hmm. sort of been journeying around since in the back of the troopy mainly. And mm-hmm. um, Yeah, but Perth's not home for me at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what was it like growing up in Perth? Like what were you, as a little girl, what was your childhood like? Um, my childhood was, um, I mean, on the videos that I have, I'm mm-hmm. kind of always in the background like singing to something or talking Mm. to an imaginary friend um so 
yeah, my childhood was um, a regular childhood. Two of the things that stand up, stand out about my childhood now when I look back is the first one is um, one of the other questions that I kind of that propels me in my work is um, my work in the world is like what are we called to protect? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, as a 10-year-old, I had this really strong attachment with the park that was opposite the road and mm-hmm. um, they were going to, well, they have put a freeway through it mm-hmm. and I'd made signs and posters for all the neighbours around the long neck turtle and the birds in the park and really trying to fire up people to fight for something and I, mm. it wasn't something that my family was leading or involved in. Mm-hmm. It was just this deep connection I had to this park and this outrage as a 10-year-old mm. um, and I really kind of followed that path mm-hmm. <laughs> of that, that outrage. Mm. Um, but the other sort of part of my childhood is if I walked down the driveway um, and looked left and looked right, um, most people looked like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that deeply concerning from a young age mm-hmm. and wondered how we could be living in a world with so much diversity, mm. but my street, everyone looked the same and talked the same. And that kind of made me want to get out of Perth so quickly. And it, yeah. well, it's not just Perth, it was just the um, the situation of me growing up. And Yeah. So, so I suppose the, as a young person, that, that knowledge of diversity and what the world has to offer, where did that come from? Were you? Mm. Mm. I think, um, I mean, my grandma, when I think about her, um, she had deep connection to nature. Mm-hmm. And part of that connection was pointing out different species and different plants and animals. And mm-hmm. it, I think um, just naturally that started to shape my knowing that mm-hmm. the world is made up of diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and... My dad and mum were really quite passionate about bringing the culture that they had access to mm-hmm. into our world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so through music mainly. Mm. Um, and so that also sparked this knowing. But I think the biggest thing, and it's still up in my dad's house, is my parents put a map of the world up in the living room mm-hmm. that's the size of the wall. Um, and it's been there since I was a child. Mm. And um we would sit on the couches and instead of like watching a tv which we Mm. never watched we would watch the other side like the wall which was the world Mm. map and that from this you know from the from young age having a wall taken up by a world map is just sparks a curiosity around Mm. who is out there what are they doing what do they feel and then those questions my parents were so supportive of Mm -hmm. um answering those and we had above that we just had a whole shelf of encyclopedias and it was kind of like this Mm -hmm. curiosity from the map and then an exploration of who lived there and Mm. um my brother and i would talk about all the places we were going and Mm. we've spent our life like visiting those places and really following that thread yeah um so that kind of yeah took me from the the small street level mm-hmm. but in the living room things were expanding yeah. which i'm so grateful for mm. but, but also i think when i imagine you as a little girl which i don't very often so don't worry <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, uh, it, it almost feels like you were this singular flower in this field almost like you were this singular person uh, did you find this connection or relatedness within your family or maybe it was through books or music or, or anything like that? Did the you, question of what, sorry? Of relatedness, mm. like you identify with this person or this thing or this piece of art or, you know. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yes and no. I've, mm. I've always felt like... Um, I mean, my parents still say to me, like, we, you know, I think we took the wrong baby home. (laughs) And um, I've always really felt like um, there's a myth, there's a story around the zygote syndrome, which is, you know, the baby that's getting carried by the stork and Mm -hmm. so excited to, like, explore Earth that falls out of the basket like a street too early Mm -hmm. and, like, pops up in a family where it doesn't really feel like you're almost certain that the family you're supposed to be from is in the next street. But, and I mean that with like such love because the family that I have are just phenomenal. Mm. But um, I think there was a tension for me growing up around, yeah, I felt different and I thought different and mm. um, I really had to find um, a kind of 
really that story around I really had to leave home to realize the relatedness I have mm-hmm. within the family. Mm-hmm. Um, but that nature and my connection like to nature has always been the the one thing that's been the north like the guide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What were you like in school? An asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you remember well, we when, yeah, <laughs> um, you and I did an event maybe eight years ago or something and, um, mm. in the front row, my teacher had flown yes. over, yeah. Yeah, 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 my teacher had flown over from Perth, yeah. um, to surprise me at this mm. event that I was speaking at. And when I asked why he was there, he said, because half the teachers still wonder if you went to jail or you actually <laughs> <laughs> did something. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think I, at school, I was, I mean, I've always been interested in boundaries mm. and playing with boundaries mm. and living on the threshold. And I was at a Christian private school. Um, and yeah, I actually had a, a really nice school experience, but I know that I was quite naughty. Um, mm. But when I look back now, it was, I was impressing the teachers who um, would shut down questions. Mm-hmm. Like, mm. yeah, I think my mind. And my respect comes from within conversations where it can be expansive and there's curiosity and mm. and also the, I don't know, but, you know, but um, some of the teachers that were, would shut me down and not want me to speak, mm. I would be an asshole. Mm. And I, I don't know if I've asked you this, but how do you learn best? Is it through, it's like, I, I don't think it's from instruction from a teacher. Absolutely not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah. No, I need to be, um, I need to really be experiencing yeah. life mm. to be learning it. Mm. Um, and it needs to, for me, um, even just the year 12 exams, like I had a tutor for every subject. I really mm. struggled to make sense of why I needed to learn these concepts that didn't, in my mind, relate meaningfully to my mm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I, and pull to something where I can see meaning and connection. Mm. Um, I throw myself into it and it, mm. it moves from like coming in, you know, into my head and out of my mouth in that kind of like a loop of the head mm-hmm. and it weaves its way through my whole body and it becomes deeply integrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I can remember things and live into things that, yeah, have meaning in my life and have mm. um, relevance. And I really struggled with that at school because I was just like, why are we you know, why are we all here? Like, Mm. what is the point? What are we all being schooled for? And Mm -hmm. what do these subjects mean? And who decides that? And Mm. can we have a conversation about that? And um, who actually is God? And Mm. can we talk about that? Or do we just have to recite the Bible? And Mm -hmm. these sorts of questions, I wanted to have bigger conversations. And Mm. um, so it was, yeah, and it was a lonely, in some ways, a really lonely experience. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. It's kind of a strange thing being grouped with people in your postcode. Um, and then you, you're made to feel in some way that these friendships and this whole thing is the most serious thing and the most important thing. And yeah. again, I'd just go home and lay on the couch and remember like staring at the world. Like, mm. you know, I'll be out there one day. Mm. Have to tick the boxes. <laughs> yep, yep. And the tick the boxes thing, ironically, has become such a big part of my work. You know, mm. really challenging the systems that make us tick these boxes. Mm. And having that freedom to question like why are we ticking those boxes and surely Mm. there's a different way and Mm. we don't all fit into this one Mm. one way with school though like with those subjects you mentioned was was there any subject that you did drama (laughs) (laughs) why does that not surprise me (laughs) i love drama um and i love english because i love Mm. writing Mm. um and they're my two loves but Mm. um yeah i think i did um Geography because um, it was there was a fun camp mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. like you know I was choosing things for it's just so strange just you have to choose these things and the pressure and education in my family like um, it's only you know my dad has um, my dad went and studied but mm-hmm. um, in most of our family it's not a um, going to uni hasn't been a path at all mm-hmm. but it was something my parents were quite passionate about that being an opportunity for me and my siblings mm-hmm. and I felt that pressure of like if I don't you know if I don't succeed in this mm-hmm. I'll let let my parents down but mm-hmm. I just didn't really see the point so I had an agreement with my parents that I'd do my final maths exam mm-hmm. and that night I'd be on a plane 
to Europe mm-hmm. um, as a 17 year old and that's the, the deal we had and that's the deal that that wow. happened yeah yeah were there besides uni were there other expectations from your from your parents no hmm. no I've never my parents are um, yeah the way they love hmm. is um, is very freeing mm-hmm. and it's really shaped my life mm-hmm. um, yeah it's kind of just give everything a crack and be as kind and generous as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the uni expectation mm-hmm. was a big one. Yep. Mm. Yeah. How was Europe as a 17 year old? Mm. Um, I, I went with mum and my sister. They came for the first month and mm. then um, sort of dropped me off at my mum's friend's house who had never met before. Mm-hmm. And I just moved in there. And then on my 18th birthday, got on a Kentucky bus. <laughs> <laughs> As you do, and was initiated. Continue, jeez. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, it reminds me of the time when I'd come back from that trip, um, and I was drinking so much fruity Lexia. And my mum came over one day and mm. went into the fridge and popped my goon bag, and um, was like, "It's like you're on a Kentucky tour, but you're going nowhere." Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I went to Europe and then yeah. um, came back and. Went to, yeah, went to uni and, mm. and that's part of the thing is that I really knew from a young age I wanted to do social work mm-hmm. and I'd organised my year 10 placement um, yep. as a social worker at the hospital and my parents said, you know, social work's not very valued. I mm. think you should do psychology mm. um, with this sort of misunderstanding that if you're a psychologist, you can be a social worker but mm. and they're two separate things. So I pleased them for a semester and then mm. changed to social work, which is, yeah. yeah. Then, but... but just with social work, like in your childhood or early adolescence, were there any any things, any events, any yearnings that sparked that desire? Or was it... It's kind of like, um, it's a mystery in the sense that mm. I just have these knowings. Mm-hmm. Like I just know I need to do something. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I know where they've come from. But sometimes it's just like, no, I'd never had a social worker in the family. I'd mm. never, um, I don't know if I'd met one. Um, but I, I think I was really interested in, um, I, my Nana, like, and as a child, I didn't know this, but as an adult, I do that. Mm. And my, my Nana had quite a lot of mental health issues, Mm. um, in particular social anxiety and social phobia. So Mm. we'd actually like Nana wouldn't come to a lot of the school events, but my granddad would. Um, mm. And then he would sometimes steal the cake or whatever. And then we'd end up going to the house and sort of recreate the story for mm. Nana as if she was there. Mm. Um, and I think I felt into a lot of her um, her pain. And um, as, you know, English migrants really had a hard time settling into the Australian town that they were in, in, mm-hmm. in South Australia and Wyala. Yep. The um, Australians, even though ironically english majority of them wow um mm. yeah so um my grand my my mum's dad um mm. is sort of a quote saying you know i've, I've never liked an english not never liked anyone from england and they were really mm. kind of ostracized um and so struggled to make friends and mm. heavily judged for being english and i think that's um, so weird i wouldn't have it's, thought that i mean yeah. but this is the strangest thing because yeah. it's like that's why i'm interested in time as well generational mm. time you know yep. it's like it's only a couple of generations ago and mm. like you're English, you know, mm. you're not Australian. Yeah. <laughs> you're just like, it's so bizarre. I, I just can't. Yeah. And that's just this, the birth of this Australian person mm. that was born mm. at this and time. And if you extend not. that a little bit further, we are all sorts. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, and so I can feel that, I, again, it's that curiosity thing of like mm. what's happening here. But yeah, I just knew that I wanted to do... Social work. Mm. I think um, I've had, like, I've been living in a very, like, sick body for a lot of my life. Mm -hmm. And I think... You mean physically? Physically sick. um, Like, lifelong chronic health and issues. And I think Mm. being in out of hospital and um, just witnessing and observing the health system and people's experience in it. Mm. um, And personally, on an embodied level, a complete lack of power and um, a lack of choice and agency and a lack of voice. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my own body experience. And I've always, I think, 
from a very young age wanted to heal that within myself but mm. you know saw that there was so much pain and wanted to, to work in the field of liberation of some sense mm. whilst feeling deeply yeah um powerless in my own yeah yeah I mean, if you're open to talk, talking about it, you know, yeah. I, I know there was a time when you were really sick and you you had to have your spleen removed. Mm. But I'm trying to play. You, you mentioned like an incident at that time in mm. the hospital involving someone else. Mm. I'm, try, I'm trying to piece together yeah, that story. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, I was really, really sick and they, yeah, they had nowhere to put me. So then mm. um, I was living on the spinal ward. And, yeah, until that point, I had finished my master's in human rights law, but I was mm. working largely in Indigenous rights and then asylum seeker rights. Mm. And, um, yeah, I met Alice, who um, was my age and had gone to work and mm. then had an accident. Um, and she was a quadriplegic and she was in hospital for four years, like mm. waiting, like nothing was medically wrong anymore. Um, but there was a 16-year housing wait list at the time for a specialised accommodation. Jeez. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. And I think that propelled me into the field of, of disability, mm. of just this, um, this hidden... Um, I mean, it's, not, it's hidden from the mainstream. It's very mm. much alive in the community. But mm. um, how is a woman who's um, in her like, early 30s and she's stuck in a hospital because there's no mm. no home for her to go into and mm. that kind of propelled me into that and it was at the birth the time of the birth of the national disability insurance scheme mm. and mm-hmm. um the convention of the rights of people with disability was being you know it was all happening at the same time as mm. of 2012 and this was all going on and it was kind of just an eruption mm-hmm. um and like i said before like i like to think of myself as a fruiting body on this this network and it was mm. all just popping up and that move me into the space of mm. disability and move me into meeting you. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that. But I I love this image of you as a fruiting body on top of this network. Mm. Because I, I I've never heard you say you know, describe yourself that, that way before, but it's kinda of describes you to a T because <laughs> no one knows where you're gonna pop up again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know my friends call me a sprite. Yeah. Um but that feels too mm. um deracinated you know mm. uh, i think a fruiting body is yeah you know where and also that knowledge or consciousness or what propels us isn't of the individual it's we're yeah. in the you know it's this whole network that's moving and pulsating and things mm. are popping up everywhere yeah so i prefer to think of myself as yeah that there's that and there's this whole underground mm. all right so maybe going back to say after you finished uni what was your first job um well when i was at uni Mm. i had a job that really changed things which Mm. was um i was doing support work and um this is kind of where the whole my whole curiosity around how we are with each other like Mm. started to burn Mm um i was doing support work and a lot of it would be um with um elderly people i would go to their homes and help them get out of bed and shower them and dress them and then like we would have breakfast together or go shopping or whatever it might be Mm. um and i was kind of on the like um when someone was sick i'd just pick up their Mm. their people that their regular people and i remember just going to a house one day i think looked at this note and it said pink flannel for the bum Mm. blue flannel for the face mm-hmm. um first name is this and going into this room i've never mm. met this person before and we i'm introducing myself whilst at the same time expecting a vulnerability mm. of undressing them and mm. showering them mm-hmm. and that the information that i've been given is that pinks for the you know uh, it just seems so transactional in nature mm. Mm. and i'm studying social work where these theories are talking about you know, care and support networks mm. and, you know, this is these utopian societies. And meanwhile, in between classes, I'm getting people out of their bed who haven't spoken to someone, you know, in the 24 hours since the last random person got them out of bed. Yeah. And um, sitting in this transaction of thinking, 
something is not right here. More boxes to be ticked. More boxes to mm. be ticked, but mm. also our culture. And I talk about, you know, meaning meaning the culture that I'm from or the Western culture mm. um, that we're currently in, like yep. that's dominating, mm. um, is yeah exacerbating this dehumanized transactional approach to care. And, mm. um, you know, we ask, where are the elders? Mm. Um, well, the elders, where are they? And mm. when did they deserve you know, a little note with mm -hmm. the flannel for the face and the flannel for the bum. Mm -hmm. When did we get to that? Mm -hmm. um, and so that was my first job. Like that was my job during uni, but that really has stuck with me. Mm -hmm. um, it's like these questions that have come up over my life. Where, where's my root system? Where are the elders? Mm -hmm. What's the network that I'm part of that's, you know, facilitating my fruiting body? Mm -hmm. These are questions that have like just been... Um, shaping my psyche mm -hmm. for so long and mm -hmm. as I you know yeah learn more and hear more and listen more um, they just keep on getting deeper and deeper mm. and, and with, with that experience it was more I, I suppose yeah it was the transactional nature that that's that stuck with you. I mean not it wasn't the transactional nature that stuck with you but the lack of kind of connection and the lack of I suppose acknowledgement of this person who is an elder <clears throat> yeah uh, I mean uh, it's kind of for me how I want to live or in in, in mm -hmm. how I want things to feel mm -hmm. is I want things to feel relational I want people mm -hmm. to feel connected mm -hmm. I want people to feel valued mm -hmm. um, and that's the opposite of that and yeah. that makes me question why mm -hmm. um, and that you know, for me, in my work, is the is the symptoms and the sickness of the post-industrial revolution, mm. and we're getting to the you know I I hope the later stages of this disease, but these mm. is this is what we're feeling here, mm. and it's the you know the, the hard thing has been how do you how do you work as a social worker mm. in a in a sick society where because it's yeah, how we treat our elders and that experience is, you know, mm. an indication for me that, that things are sick. Mm. And that, like, it, it's also, I think, a cultural question where here age is um, kind of dehumanized, whereas youth is celebrated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, ageism is, mm. is rife. Mm. Yeah. Um, and even having these conversations with dad at the moment, who's thinking of retiring mm. um, and, you know, really wondering what, what his value and purpose is mm. when he has so much value and purpose. It's mm. just that it's been tied to a specific, you know, role, role yeah. rather than being tied to him. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And I think that's a question that most people ask at some point. Yeah. And I think also the, the question that I sometimes struggle with, with this podcast, because it's called the On Meaningful Work podcast, is that there is a distinction between meaningful work and a meaningful life. Mm. And usually they're not always, you know, correlated. Like mm. you're not defined by your by your work. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, just before we started, I said to you, <laughs> "What is work?" Yeah. You know, I think. Yeah, when I was, I think back to me doing those, mm. um, the, the year twelve exams and the pressure of going to uni and it's all because it's this like to get a career and to work and mm. um but i'm wanting to put posters in people's letterbox because freeways mm. getting popped up and mm -hmm. it's you know at some point it, and it's amazing when i mean i have lived i have got meaningful had a life of meaningful work and mm. a meaningful life mm -hmm. but i've enmeshed them mm -hmm. um together yep. to be a way of living rather mm -hmm. than a separation mm. and that's a privilege that i acknowledge that mm -hmm. has, has been able to happen as well but part of it has been actually having um a disabled body for so many years mm -hmm. i haven't been able to fit the world of work mm. i don't i need more sick leave i mm. need more days off i mm. need flexi hours i need and all these things don't fit into a typical mm -hmm. employer you know package mm -hmm. which is been a blessing in disguise because it's meant i've had to think 
really creatively but also slog mm. hard to mm. carve out a life where I can work and, li- you know, to eat, mm. um, but also follow like the burning passions inside of me. Mm. Um, and I'm grateful for having sickness to be able to, in some way, being able to be forced into a position, even though mm. um, there was a lot of um, heavy reliance on my parents, which is mm. another privilege. But mm. yeah, I didn't fit the world of work. Mm. And I didn't fit the world of work because I didn't um, fit the room. Mm. And in the room you have, again, more tick boxes mm. of the things that, you know, what people want to employ. Mm. Who, pe- who What's the person, What's who is the person a place wants to employ? And... I didn't always tick those boxes. Mm. Um, and I'm saying that whilst acknowledging that I'm um, a in a white body mm-hmm. and in a settler experience on colonized land. Mm-hmm. And so I'm only ticking a couple of the bottle, the co- couple of the boxes around um, being sick. Mm. There's all these other boxes where people are cut out as yeah, well. Yep. Um, and I think, the isms, um, which of which there are, they are rife. Mm. Um, they they dominate the world of work, mm. and um, so does the story that I'm desperately wanting to compost, as Sophie Strand talks about, which is the hero's journey. Mm. You know that mm. um, that it's this individual pursuit. Mm. We strive towards this career. That mm. it's um, and it's you know this. Um, this noble, this noble a- action, action yeah. um, which is so deeply concerning for me because I don't mm. think that's what it's all about. Yeah, which is, I think, fascinating because the whole of, I think, Western mythology, even to current day, whether it's movies and, you know, books and all of that, that's the template. The hero's journey is a template. Like Star Wars is based on the, based on the hero's journey. Most yeah. things are. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested in, you know, the we live um, multi-species, intergenerational lives. Mm. Sitting here right now, I'm sipping this peppermint tea, which has come, you know, from the plant, which has mm. relied on good soil, which has relied on bacterial, which has relied on mycelium, which has relied mm. on oxygen. And mm. in my body is all of these beings. And um, I'm breathing in air. And we're in this constant relationship. And that's just mm. here in this one second. Um, and in the hero's journey, it's like, why are we celebrating the person who, no matter what, you know, they've they've slayed, they've killed, they've colonized, they've conquered, mm. and we're still bowing down to them mm. as if, wow, you've done all of this stuff to get to this point. Mm. But I'm interested in, and who's holding you there, and mm. who did you who did you step on or rely on or depend on to get there? Because mm. we don't live independent lives; we're completely yep. dependent on each other. Mm. Yet our world of work as if has kind of stripped away that whole um, story and Mm. just taken out the individual. Mm. And with that, you have, I feel like that leads to extractive culture, exploitative culture, transaction, Mm. transactional culture. Um, And that's, I feel like the opposite of where Mm. I feel like we should be Mm -hmm. exploring. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it sounds to me though that that you've had, maybe it's not a hero's journey, but you've had a journey similar to, uh, similar in the sense that, you know, there was this sense that you didn't fit in and then you kind of went on this wanderlust to try and figure out your sense of place, your sense of who you are, the sense of, I, I suppose, kind of how, I wouldn't say limitations, but using your... Uh, what others might consider, you know, uh, your limitations to then see mm. how you can maximize those to, to fit into this world. So that's kind of a mm. journey in itself. It is yeah. a journey in itself, but for me, it doesn't, um, it doesn't fit. If it fit the hero's journey, mm. I would have died. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think um, the question is. I mean, the hero's journey for me is around. Um, me, I'm on my journey mm. and what am I shaping? What mm. am I doing? Mm. But I want to talk about stories that are asking what more around what's shaping me. Yep. Um, mm. And, 
yes, there could be the framing of I'm on the journey and I'm feeling like I don't know where home is and I'm trying to seek it. Mm. Or what if um, the home on earth is actually seeking me? Mm. And there are all these relationships at play and um, people that I depend on and rely on. And mm. um, there's this whole narrative mm. that, um, that the story means nothing. It doesn't. It's not even a story without all mm. of those other parts. I can't extract myself mm. from the real story to, to talk about my hero, like my quest, mm. because that would be um, an untrue mm-hmm. a story. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, I think the hero's journey, um, it is definitely shaped. It is, it is, you know, it's the story of our current culture. Mm. Um, and I really um, want to see it composted mm-hmm. and see what we can grow from it because mm. I don't think it's, it's serving us. Mm. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm going back a bit then and into, say maybe... So when I met you, you 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 were kind of on this. I I don't use the word journey, but but you had come to a place. We can where, use the word journey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Scared to use the word journey. Now. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, we had come to this place where uh, you were working in disability. Mm. Uh, how did you come to there? We- to disability. Mm-hmm. Um, I came out of hospital and um, I yeah, had finished my master's in human rights law, wanted to work in the policy space mm. um, and circling back to the Kentucky tour, mm-hmm. a woman I met on the Kentucky tour who was my favourite friend. When I, I need to go on a Kentucky tour. <laughs> <I know, exactly. laughs> she, um, she had a, a friend who's an absolute genius, mm. um, brilliant artist, Lauren Matthews, and she was leading a... Um, organization CEO of an organization in early childhood disability Mm -hmm. and hooked me up with a job Mm -hmm. and as I said before I'd have had my own experience that was still very much Mm -hmm. in the depths of um, the NDIS was being birthed Mm -hmm. the UN um, rights convention of people with disability was being adopted and signed by Australia and all these things were happening and it just Mm -hmm. was like a um, is it Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz when she's in that like Mm -hmm. (laughs) In the tornado. She's in the tornado. Yeah. I was yep. in a tornado of yep. like change. Mm. Did, you, did you end up in Kansas? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I don't know if the NDIS is Kansas, baby. Yeah. But <laughs> Actually, not not to, you know, uh, kind of poke the bear, but could you describe what the NDIS is? <laughs> um, mm. oh. just, just like a brief. For people who wouldn't... For people who no, wouldn't can know. you... St- I mean, back mm. with... Um, Go back to Alice, is her mm. story is, um, you know, she was waiting as a kind of a passive recipient um, mm. for a s- support system that was failing her. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, disability supports were funded by the state. And mm. so there's 100 spots, like that's, you know, yep. for the purpose of the story, 100 spots. And um, you wait till a spot's available and then you get the supports you need or the home you need or whatever mm. it might be. Um so disability organisations were funded by the state mm. and um, to deliver these supports. Mm. The NDIS um, turned that on its head mm-hmm. by funding the person mm-hmm. to buy the supports that they mm. need. So in that case, um, Alice would be funded to access the support she needs rather than wait for the state to mm-hmm. have a spot for her. Mm-hmm. So it completely overnight radicalised mm. Um disability um, rights and, dis- and access to services but mm. and it also overnight turned disability organizations that were you know funded by the state mm-hmm. um, into competitive mm. profitable or even not-for-profit like um, so it went from a yeah, funded system to a market, market went to based. a market model overnight yeah. mm. um, and that was wild <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It was, and this is kind of getting to the point where we met, met, Mm. but yeah, and I suppose one of the, probably one of the first conversations we have, we had was around this kind of wild west almost of you traveling to the trial sites Mm. and people are just so scared, they had no idea what was happening. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, do you want to... Yeah, I got mm. in my car and just drove around Australia. Mm. I was really interested in being a bridge between um, children and families. I was working in the children and family space. So children and families, um, the services that they wanted to access and the government who was rolling this out. Mm. And it was a big experiment and yep. a big test. And, it, and at the start of it, um, there was a lot of... It was um, it was a trial, and so mm. we got to, you know, the feedback loop was quite strong. This mm. is the experience of families, and this is what the, this is what services are experiencing, and then mm. kind of responding to that. And now it's a beast that's that's mm. harder to to shift and change, but um, still um, phenomenal people working in it. But mm. yeah, traveling around, I think for me, I just I realized that. I love what I guess what I'm here on earth for is listening to stories mm. and um, I think that that in the whole tornado mm. um, the stories of people's experience was being um, left out mm. um, and because they always were left out I mean mm. the question of you know where are people around the table and who's actually making decisions mm -hmm. it's that you know people making decisions for people or on behalf of people mm -hmm. it wasn't being led by people with disability mm -hmm. um and so yeah I, I traveled australia and had those conversations for years and years really being that mm. that conduit um and services um yeah there wasn't enough there's a workforce apocalypse mm. um there wasn't enough um and there isn't enough uh services to meet the demand mm. yeah yeah and and i suppose the conversation we had was because at the time i was working with startups on their business modeling and service mm. design and so on and the conversation we had was really like the start of something for us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And yeah, we got together. We started a little a little company called Balancing Act 3. Mm -hmm. And like for me personally, it was one of the most exciting, uh, meaningful things mm. that I've done. Because uh, I suppose my skill set, whatever it was, just being applied to this mm. was... Um, was really something and I learned you know a lot from you in yeah that. and just about what I learned was really about kind of people and who they are and how, how they how they are defined and they're mm. not defined by just their bodies or mm. you know how able they are it's there's this whole story around them that's usually not seen you know? mm. yeah mm. I think the thing I loved about balancing act and I mean where the name came from, mm. life is a great balancing act, is that um, what happened is that um, the bridge between business and humanity mm. and innovation got kind of built in a night mm. because um, services had to adopt business models of which they've never needed before because mm -hmm. their funding would come in mm -hmm. guaranteed every month and that would pay the staff, which would, you know, so... Mm -hmm. Overnight, they're having to do that. And um, the best thing about it was overnight, people are saying, I don't want your shit service anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go on your bus to bingo. Like, yeah. I want to be going to gigs. Mm. I want to live my life because mm. um, this uh, this ableist society we live in that just like, um, yeah, the, the, the whole setup of what the belief system of mm. what, people with disability, how they how they live, mm. what they yearn for, what their desires are, just mm. absolutely smothered by an ableist system that just threw a bone. Mm. <laughs> um, and that, that uprising was powerful. And mm. it's like, I'm not, you know, if you don't meet these needs, you'll go out of business, which mm. is a good thing, mm. you know. Yep. Um, and I loved working in that innovation space. It was just, we mm. just saw... Um, the the creation of um the, the response to what people mm. needed just mm. just blew up yeah but also it was a response to what people needed but there was this is my this is say around 2016 there was a bit of a lot of denial as to what was needed 
internally for organizations for these service mm. organizations and you know one of the first workshops we ran and just the conversation around business and revenue that was just anathema to people we like we could literally saw people just cower in yeah. their seats and yeah and yeah. I, but it goes mm. back to um the flannels mm. and hear it all the time is that um, services would say, you know, we're not in it for the money. Mm. We don't want to talk about dollars. We just want to, you know, we're here to help. Mm. And the other side of that, it's like, well, um, I want to pay for a service because I want a high quality service, which helps me live the life I want to live. Mm. Um, and yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't any business vernacular really for people to adopt, mm. but there was, which should be, there was high expectations by the community of saying, this is what mm. we want. Mm. So rapid change. Mm. Um, and with rapid change also comes or market opportunity comes mm -hmm. businesses that had had the money and had the know-how mm -hmm. that dominated the market that weren't necessarily the ones who had the relationships and were embedded in the community they were the ones mm -hmm. that could market themselves well and um, that's been a shame as well to yep. see mm -hmm. um, the erosion of community-led community-based mm -hmm. organizations who I guess got a little bit left behind but didn't mm. have the resources um, to know how to pivot fast enough mm. um, and to see that happen in disability services has um, yeah been heartbreaking especially mm. working with those community organizations mm. um, and for you know for a long time I've advocated that um, to have a fully responsive um, integrated holistic healthcare mm. and disability system mm. um, there needs to be a bit of both mm. you know the individual um, control is phenomenal and mm. um, never take that away but that um, there are some things that there are some things that services can do mm. and could support um, from state yep. funding yep. And not the market-based yeah not the full market yeah. but yeah like, mm. a, like a mix and I know that that's controversial but mm. Um, it's a system that I find really hard to navigate and mm. I've literally been in it since the drafting of the legislation. Yep. So I know it inside and out and I still don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> so to, to try and navigate it when you're mm. holding everything else is, is yeah, mm. a bit of a disaster. Mm. And actually, I haven't really asked you this, but when you think back on Balancing Act, mm. um, what do you think about it? Like what comes up for you? What... Um, <laughs> just thinking about Cambodia then yeah. <laughs> well, we had a, a planning time when I was living in Cambodia yep. um, what comes up for me is um, uh, one of the learnings is we saw a need for mm. services um, and there was so much change that people had their heads in the sand and mm. there was just so much overwhelm and to get your head around overnight what you had mm. to change in your business, for example. Um, and we were working with that on the front line almost, mm. you know, as first responders in these organisations to mm. change. Um, and it was hard and disability was still and is um, a area that's underfunded that's mm. not talked about that mm. doesn't have the um, glitz and the glamour of like the tech scene and other yeah. areas and so mm. it was struggled to get people to give a shit really mm. and invest in what we knew was needed mm. um, so I think back to it in it was a really beautiful and um, much needed little niche mm. that um, we needed way more of a community mm. Perhaps ahead of its time. Mm. Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. No, I, I think um, for, for me as well, it was, I think, a lot of work. But yeah, yeah I, I go back to that. We were kind of ahead of our time because I, I think just the conversation around business and revenue and money I, I just got the feeling that they weren't kind of ready to have that yet yeah mm. um yeah and it's like i mean 
we're living in strange times. Mm. And I think it's just a thread in this conversation of, you know, where are our elders? How are we treating mm. our elders? Mm. How are we, it's this um, mixing the world of business, which has um, actively um, excluded disabled people mm-hmm. from it because of productivity mm. issues yep. or perceived productivity issues mm-hmm. when those assumptions and ways of working and being interact with a service system that has mm. been largely working in the dark, mm-hmm. underfunded, mm-hmm. Um, uh, not regulated to an extent, poor quality, mm. um, not necessarily the services but just doing the best they can but not having the opportunities to do more because they're kind mm. of capped in innovation and capped in thought by um, the government funding them. Yep. Um, it's, it's like a the combination just was this, a really weird experience. Mm. Like it's um, overnight, you know, could smell, smell the fox at the door mm. um, or the wolf at the door mm. that's seen a business opportunity mm. um, and the the organisations that really were embedded in their community and doing everything they could and going above and beyond mm. um, were really good at what they did mm. but didn't have anyone in the organisation that knew necessarily everything about business because yep. they didn't need to. Yep. Mm. Um, yeah. Because I think that's a struggle as well where it's this different type of mindset that you needed and for one organisation to have, you know, to, or to expect of their staff two separate mindsets it's really mm. really yeah. tough yeah um no, I, I don't want to really talk about kind of the cr- stuff you're doing now but also just your connection to country and your connection to um the land and your connection to the the ancestors of this land and mm. indigenous you know you you yeah, I think you have this real um, it's it's more than connection. I'm trying to figure out mm. the word, but there's there's something that that's so deep that mm. I yeah. Yeah, I think it's the question I started with is what is my root system? Mm. Um, and wherever I go anywhere I ask, you know, whose land am I standing on? Mm. And that gives me really you know, that question leads me to discovering like mm. truth telling and mm-hmm. knowing the story of the place mm-hmm. and um from a young child i knew that the land speaks and i think what's my passion and um what i think is available to us is that most of our ancestors and i'm saying our now in terms of the thing we have in common across the world mm. our greatest commonality across cultures mm. is that the world is animate Mm. Um, and that um, it's only since the rise of agriculture and then the industrial revolution that we Mm. have taken the animate out of everything Mm. but actually 99.9 percent of our shared of our of our ancestors no matter what our cultures were Mm. um, were in deep relationship with the land Mm. They, mm. the the rocks were the grandfathers. The they knew when what the when the crow lands on your house, mm. there's a message there. You mm. know when the bird sings, like there is this deep knowing and relationship and a a prayer to gods that bring rain and a prayer mm. to the gods that bring mm. the the harvest. And a, mm. we have this ritual and this this is not um, me. Um, and thankfully, this is not me um, appropriating anyone's culture. This is something mm. I can say i had once mm. upon a time mm. and actually the cells in my body are made up of more of that time mm. than they are of the recent time that has been you know part of the lineage that has been um colonized mm. uh, colonizing and moved from those those root systems mm. and so if i stretch time and i think about yeah the majority of my ancestors i can touch into this place that feels so right to me which is that the world is alive mm. and that then because i live here mm. um and i live up in the kimberley mm. and um for me that area is deeply spiritual and mm. the veils between the world is 
very thin mm. and Aboriginal culture is um, strong and um, centred and mm. time is different. And so I've been able to experience that and be mm. welcomed into that. And mm. um, I found that really, um, that is what has healed me because in my looking at the map, in my looking left and right on mm. the street of why does everyone look like me and mm-hmm. in my yearning for diversity and my yearning for where is my root system, this common thread is um, something's not right here. Mm. Like something doesn't add up. Something's mm. not adding up in the school system. Something mm. doesn't add up in work. Something doesn't add up in the health system. Mm-hmm. Something's not adding up in the disability system. What, What is this? And it's it's the way of being. It's mm. that, um, yeah. And so for me, the land is, the land speaks and um, the people, the teachers that I've sought out um, mm. are, indigenous people within you know in this country that have Mm. um been generous enough to let me sit next to them and listen Mm -hmm. um to them whilst they you know really provide me deep medicine Mm -hmm. that has um made me um in awe and in wonder for their culture but Mm -hmm. more so than that has led me back to my own root system Mm -hmm. um and that's what i'm deeply grateful for it's Mm -hmm. been it's meant that i've reclaimed the myths mm-hmm. um it's that i've reclaimed ritual and rites of passage that mm-hmm. um that w- that i had in the culture that mm. isn't this culture but mm. i'm not i'm not saying that we we go backwards mm. at all um you know that's um not at all what i what i think but i i think that to look at the stories that we have that are like dominant, Mm -hmm. the hero's journey or Mm. the extractive story or the exploitive Mm. story or all of these stories that have been so dominant for some time, I'm I'm interested in how we can re-story. And I think a key part of that is um, centering ourselves back in the web Mm. of being and belonging, which Mm. is in a circle, Mm. not on the top. And once we drop into that, I think we have mm. this whole other opportunity of and guidance on how we could live. Yeah. So suppose in, in ancestral myth or indigenous myth, is there a reframing of the hero's journey? Is it or yeah? Yeah, mm. I mean in so many of in so many of the myths that because myth is born of a place. Mm. And Again, we are a culture of ori- I'm talking about my culture as mm. oral storytellers, as mm-hmm. much of the world was, mm. um, and that the text that we that we use and the written language then um, started to take some of the meaning out of mm-hmm. the oral stories. But like the fruiting body, they would pop mm. up mm. for that place, and then they would evolve into the next place and and make mm. and in all the myths there's always um the trees that speak and the rocks Mm. it's a complete animate experience Mm. um and i think what was your question (laughs) 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 yeah i just keep saying fox woman when you're speaking of myth for some reason um and yeah i don't think any of those like yes there is this um those myths have been taken now mm. to um, portray and be used as this um, justification for the human experience that mm. we're slaying and that we're conquers conquering. Mm. Um, but I think there's there's so many other sub stories within the story that mm. have been like um, shut down mm. or cut out, mm-hmm. but they're bubbling and they're they're rising. Yep, um, and yeah, I don't know if you've ever read the Carrier Bag Theory. No. Mm. Um, phenomenal um, essay about the opposite of the hero's journey. And I think that's those sorts of stories, the stories that talk about um, community and the mm. collective mm. and that not being just a humanistic experience, that mm. being one of an ecological one mm. and a multi-realm one that brings in, that that is actually makes us think about us mm. not i yep and yep. that's liberating yep. like mm. if you can wake up and think about we mm. um 
and the relationships that we're in as opposed mm. to just me and my thing. I feel like it just takes the pressure off. Mm. And it's kind of back to the time thing is it's not about what I'm doing in my lifetime. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm getting up every day thinking about seven generations from now. Mm. So if I can just tend to a little seed mm. um, in this lifetime, mm. that's okay because yep. that's what we're all doing. It's not my own quest and this legacy that I need mm. to leave behind. And if I do, that's pretty fun. Mm. But it's not, I think it's decentering that need mm. for the individual quest and about on the that's collective fascinating. one. Yeah. Um, but, but also, going back to your favorite word, uh, journey. <laughs> <laughs> because you, you've, you have a little van, a little troopy, and you've traveled extensively throughout Australia. Mm working with indigenous communities what 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 was the work you were doing all was sorts it? of mm. work yeah mm. i started that um yeah traveling all the trial sites and talking about people's experience and mm. the main reason why i was traveling around um you know back in 2013 14 15 was um that uh regional and remote particularly remote aboriginal communities were not being mm. included in the design of the NDIS mm. and a market model isn't going to work, yeah. you know, in so mm. many parts of Australia, mm. let alone in urban areas. And we needed a different approach mm. and I was really like, passionate about that. But then it kind of evolved and um, that's when I started working with Foria around mm-hmm. um, and yourself. and um, Past guest of the podcast, by the way. Love <laughs> it. Um, around mm. how we capture storytelling, mm-hmm. um, language, culture and country in mm. virtual reality mm-hmm. um, as a mode for um, social change, which is was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's just evolved into different projects mm. and work over time. And I think being in the troopy, a number of things is possible mm. in that um, you're not just driving in and driving out of somewhere or flying mm. and flying out without the relationship. It's not transactional. Yep. It's being able to pop up somewhere stay for as long as it you know as long as you want Mm -hmm. make cups of tea out the back be able to store heaps of biscuits in the back Mm. and kind of have a little mini roving um home that i can i was invited to sit down and listen and i Mm. had the gift of time and i think Mm. um, we don't spend enough time with each other Mm -hmm. and i think story um and people's story it's what can change social policy. I know mm-hmm. that for, for me in the social policy space, um, when you've got story, it's what moves people. It's what mm-hmm. propels people towards mm-hmm. understanding and wanting to change. Mm-hmm. But also being, even if nothing changed, being really truly heard mm-hmm. um, and someone listening to your story is life-changing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I think about the times when someone's really listened to me mm-hmm. and it's profound. Yeah. Um, and we don't spend enough time listening. We might mm. listen for the sake of co-design or listen yep. for this, but it's mm. always with an attached agenda mm-hmm. um, or an attached outcome. And when you attach yourself to an outcome, um, the person that you're listening to knows mm. that. And you're not listening. You're listening to verify or validate your, your yeah. outcome. Mm. Um, so a lot of the time when I was traveling, I, didn't, I was in between projects as well. I would still the listening practice was mm. more rife than ever and it would just mm. built these relationships that and for me that's how I started creating work was that I would do project work in you know would bring in income so I could eat mm. but that I'd have enough time to be able to do a lot of listening and mm. a lot of advocacy work for families and mm. um, still maintain a counseling practice and this could all be um you know, for free, as we would say, mm-hmm. because I just had worked my life out for this is what I need to eat and the rest is like me giving in the world mm. as opposed to me, you know, working for someone and being like really structured and mm-hmm. that wouldn't yeah align with how I want to listen and how I want to mm. show up in the world. So it was, yeah, it was a wild time. Mm. Because, I mean, the other thing is there's listening, there's listening in this time and how kind of we like i'm guilty of i'm guilty of it right now because i'm listening to you and you're looking at the time no (laughs) (laughs) no but 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 i suppose while i'm listening to you i'm thinking about i'm trying to process your story and thinking you think about the next question i'm going to ask you which is not really 
kind of deep listening. Yeah. You, you know, I should just listen to you. Uh, but I suppose what you're talking about is this this relationship between listening and time and how that's so different in like an indigenous landscape mm. where time is stretched stretched and it's spread out and and even conversations are circular yeah. and not linear yeah you know mm. absolutely and it's about relationship and mm. um that's what i've been yearning like that's the missing thing for me is my yeah. life as i was saying before like i didn't feel like i belong anywhere for quite some time mm. um but it's because I, it was literally a perspective shift around mm. going from thinking it's me in the world without relationship to somewhere mm. rather than I'm actually like in a split second you can change your thinking around mm. what am I in relationship with, yep. which is then all of a sudden you're in a million relationships. Yeah. <laughs> not um, necessarily with people, but just, yeah. just the And that's the thing. It's, and, not, yeah. it's not with people. You yeah. know, it's stories and the listening isn't about human individual this is what's mm. happening to me it's a whole um mixed bag of species and mm. beings and you know and that's that listening is feeling into that mm. um with your whole body like mm. not your ears or yep. not just your eyes but mm. you know all of the sensual sensual part that can like feel and um mm. intuit and trust and tap into um that space between someone mm. that we don't have enough time to explore. Yeah. Okay? Um, so maybe so to bring this full circle, like where are you now on earth and <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> doing lots of different things mm. um, as usual. But mm. yeah, as I said, moved up to the Kimberley and mm-hmm. um, what I'm really interested about that is tending to land up there and bringing a lot of friends up mm. Um throughout this year um, to, yeah, for very many different reasons. One of those mm. is um, a walk that's happening on country up there, on mm. Mangala country in, in July this year, um, which is a um, really a fight for the Mangala people's mm. um, country and a fight against fracking and mining. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's happening. and But tending to the land up there and this land that's been... Um, obviously stolen and then mm. um, smashed with farming and mm. cattle. and um, So we're trying to regenerate that, but I don't yet know how to really plant and plant. <laughs> so I've been doing a lot of Googling. Um, but mm. I'm really interested in a bridge mm. between um, the East Coast and the Kimberley as well. Mm. And there's a few of us that are really feeling into that. So mm. um, that's there. Um, I also work for a, um, an Aboriginal controlled organisation, um, on a few different projects, but largely looking at um, centering traditional healing mm-hmm. back into the mental health and um, counselling service system, mm-hmm. um, which it's never been in b- 